Welcome to See You on the Other Side, where the world of the mysterious collides with the world of entertainment. A discussion of art, music, movies, spirituality, the weird, and self-discovery. And now, your hosts, musicians and entertainers who have their own weakness for the weird, Mike and Wendy from the band Sunspot. Well, congratulations, Wendy. Thanks, and congratulations to you, Mike. Well, thank you. So the people at home might wonder exactly what we're talking about. Oh my gosh, so much news, so much news on this end. And we can start with yours. Wendy, you finished your first marathon yesterday. Hooray! Thank you. Yep, it's all over now. Now I can go back to sitting around on the couch and eating potato chips and well now you show that you can do it how <laughs> how long was the training for that uh, i did an 18 week program 18 week so started end of may and or maybe it was the beginning of may i don't remember but whatever 18 weeks ago where did you run i ran the milwaukee lakefront marathon what part of milwaukee do you run, do you run around there any haunted um, parts I think so, yeah, because it went down Lake Drive, so a bunch of those old mansions oh, surely yeah. have some history. But um, no, it started in Grafton, which is north, about 25 miles. Yeah, I was going to say. And kind of scooches around, and it was all along the lakefront, as the name would suggest. And it's very scenic. You get to see Lake Michigan a lot. Unfortunately, it rained the entire time, so I spent most of my time... <laughs> Cursing the skies that were, yeah, you know, raining on me. But it was a nice course, so yeah. And it, it wasn't too cold or anything like that. It was cold and it was yucky, rainy, and unpleasant. But yeah, sure could have been worse. Good, good. That was how my my first marathon was cold and rainy too in Duluth around Lake Superior. That's right. I do remember. I think it was a similar kind of day. Yeah, it, but it was in Minnesota, and so everything in Minnesota is colder. You expect so, it. <laughs> yeah. So. Like, you, I mean, people were running in their moon boots. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But, well, the marathon experience was very fun and uh, it was quite a journey, as they always say. When you were running, like, when did you hit your wall? I mean, the worst was probably like around mile 23. Okay. That's when everything just started hurting really bad. So at that point, I was looking at my distance thing like every 30 seconds just to see how much, <laughs> you know, how much closer the next mile was. That was kind of my strategy was I just... Once I got to that point, I was just focused on get to the next mile, not mm-hmm. get to the end, just get to the, get to mile 24, get to mile 25. So were you still thinking awesome. rationally? Like I, I found that I uh, just had that little thing where it's like, you're not really thinking rationally once you hit the wall and you're, you know, you're just like, I had like a fight or flight response. <laughs> I don't think so. I didn't really have anything majorly weird like that. I, I did have a couple times when I looked up and I thought I saw people I knew spectators, but mm-hmm. they ended up not being people I knew. So, but that, I guess I could just blame that on nearsightedness. And <laughs> was there, how, uh, was there a lot of people in the uh, cheering, cheering you on? Not really. No. I mean, there were, but mostly at the end, I think yeah. the rain probably scared a lot of people away. It's not very much fun standing out there for hours, just standing there in the rain, you know? So, but the people that were there were, were very enthusiastic and there were strangers that were very helpful because they have your name on the bib with your number. Mm-hmm. So, oh, they say it like, hi, Wendy. Yeah. yeah, right. Yeah, they'd be like, come on, Wendy, you got this. You can do it. So they must have seen the, the pain and the agony on my face. <laughs> anyway, yep, that's, that's done. But that's awesome. That's awesome. Enough about me. I mm-hmm. think your news eclipses all of the marathon 
excitement. Well, it certainly is exciting news. You know, I don't know what it eclipses, but I did have a I did have a daughter. I, I mean, I didn't have the daughter, but my wife had a daughter on last Monday. Your daughter was born. Yes, my daughter was born. So she's a week old today. Congratulations. Thank you. Healthy. Everything's great. Adeline is her name, and she's and uh, she's lovely. She's so cute. Yes, she is very. I, saw her. I got to meet her cute. last week, and she's beautiful. And I have to say, she does bear some resemblance to you. So. Yeah, she's a handsome child. <laughs> she's a handsome no, child. I just wanted the audience to be able to picture, you know, a little baby with Mike's face. With Mike's Wait, like a no. She's got a beard no. already. Right. No. She's got a, she's got no, a beard. No, no. A receding hairline and a weird bald spot. No, but she did come up with a decent amount of hair. Not like a fro or anything, but a, but a cute amount of hair. And uh, no, she's fantastic. And I've been enjoying it. It's been, it's been a fun week so far and getting to know her. And uh, I'm working already trying to form a psychic bond. Ah, see okay, if, that's a good... See what I can father, do. Good father-daughter Yeah. experience. And if anybody out there has any... Uh, Psychic experiments that we could perform on my child without, <laughs> oh my it, without it warping her. Let me know and send it over and we can see what we can do. But she's great so far. And yeah. uh, just, just a week old and uh, went to the doctor today and the doctor gave the thumbs up and everything's great. So I can't, oh, com- that's awesome. can't complain at all. She's wonderful. Congratulations. And you're Thank now you. in the dad club. Yes, I'm in, I am in the father club. So that's fun. <laughs> a fun club <laughs> to exciting. be in. Very exciting. Well, right. that's, that's got, great news. I've got at least 12 years before she hates me, so I'm going to enjoy this time as much as I possibly can. <laughs> well, I'm sure it'll be great. I, thank you. Thank you. Speaking of fun clubs, we have the Five Star Club, the Five Star Review Club. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, that's one of my favorite. Even more good news. Yep. Like, what's going to happen? Yeah. Our hearts are going to just explode here. Right. Explode with goodness and fun. And, and, so, <laughs> and here, happiness. Five-star review on iTunes. This is from um, Pundit Halcyon, whose uh, comment is freaking awesome. Whoa. This podcast has quickly become part of my daily playlist. Mike and Wendy are also members of a band called Sunspot, which is frequently played at the end and is also great. I highly recommend both the podcast and the band. If you ever have the opportunity to see Sunspot live, don't miss out, but at least Give this podcast a shot if you like podcasts and radio shows such as Joe Rogan Experience or Coast to Coast AM. You will not be disappointed here. They deserve far more exposure, and I hope they keep doing it for years to come. Aw, that's so nice. Thank that, you so much. Yeah, Pundit Halcyon, you rule. Seriously, and I like it when people stick around for the song at the end. <laughs> Yeah, I do too. I think <laughs> because, it's fun. You know, it's a small part of the podcast, but it's a huge part of the time that we spend on the podcast is creating these songs and you yes. know, recording these demos and stuff. So you never really know if people actually just, you know, hit the mute. But sometimes people mention it and yeah, to but, all of you who have. Well, and everybody likes the parts that they like. Some people like music. Some people like to yeah. talk. And that's why we do both inside the podcast so that you it's can a little enjoy. variety pack. Right. And well, and also so that then we can go out and play the songs that we, because if we just talked, if we did a live show, we just talked for an hour, people would be like, hey, you can't really tap my foot to this. <laughs> so that's I why. I can't really shake my booty to that. Correct. That's why we create music from it so that we can have fun <laughs> live shows where we can sing songs about this weird stuff and then meet people and hear their stories in person and talk about rock and roll and drink beers and do all the lovely things that come with that. Indeed. Um, speaking of lovely things, this, our first Australian guest this week. Awesome. Oh, and you know, not only is she the only 
Australian guest we've had, but I believe she's the only one from the other side of the equator. Ah, from the Southern Hemisphere. Am I right? That's right. Well, we talk about it in the interview because she flushes the toilet and it goes the other direction. She checked, she checked the swirl. <laughs> right. She's like, it's funny. crikey. I've been to Australia once on a family trip. And the first thing my brother and I did was run into the bathroom. <laughs> and check the swirl. <laughs> of course you're going to do that. Oh. oh no but uh she's really a lot of fun and this podcast is not maybe for the weak the the, the faint of heart i'd probably say because uh, we are discussing serial killers so serial killers and paranormal connections and some cases uh that you guys might never have heard of that are really fascinating and interesting and disturbing yeah and absolutely disturbing and so we're i mean obviously speaking to you from wisconsin serial killer capital of the midwest <laughs> Right. Amanda Howard, she's a really interesting author. She's a lot of fun. She woke up. Um, actually, she didn't go to sleep to be able to do the podcast with us. Oh, that was so nice. So she stayed up all night and uh, not like it was actually it was like prom that night too for her kids. So she came home after like bringing her, <laughs> bringing her kid home from prom. Oh, and perfect. So I have to, right. She wasn't like on a bender or something like that. I was just, when I said she stayed up all night and made it sound like Amanda Howard, she knows how to lay it down, man. She's but like she, drinking Red Bulls and like, <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. Let's talk about killing. All right. Anyway, enough of this. Uh, let's see what all Amanda right. has to say. We have a special guest on the show today, the first Australian to join us. And we're excited to welcome author Amanda Howard, who's written such titles as Murder on the Mind and A Killer in the Family. Thank you for joining us today, Amanda. Thanks, Mark. It's great to be here. Yeah, and you are currently in Sydney, Australia. That's right. And it's amazing to me because we're talking, you know, to the other side of the world and I'm looking at you right here and it's, it's, it, everything's in real time. And so number one, mind blown, obviously. Uh, but <laughs> number two, so I have to thank you especially for joining us because it is 5 a.m. in Australia today and you are live with us. So we appreciate that. So Amanda, just to introduce you to the See You on the Other Side audience a little bit, you are a true crime author mm-hmm. and right. also you, but you're a fiction writer as well. Is that correct? That's right. Yeah. I thought, um, why, why stick to one genre when I can break the rules and have a play all over the place? Well, also, and it's fun, too, because you can take some of the inspiration that you get from the true crime stuff and then play it out in different ways in different scenarios uh, when you yeah, do fiction. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's so strange. With the true crime stuff, I really have to censor it. I have to actually sort of step back a bit, and you can't sort of go into the gruesome detail. So then when I write fiction, I can actually just go insane and be bloody and violent and and it works. So it's really bizarre that fiction is allowed to do this and true crime, you sort of have to take that step back. Well, it's different too, because true crime, you might be dealing with people who are still alive. That's true. Yeah. And there's families out there that probably don't want to know all the gruesome details, but it's just, I've, I've always found that strange that um, the real stuff you have to pretend it wasn't there. What got you interested in true crime in the first place? Like a lot of people like to write uh, a lot of people love to tell stories, but to actually do the research of, you know, murders and serial killers and things like that, I think that takes a certain kind of personality. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Nothing implied there. <laughs> um, I mean, but really, it actually comes, 
Um, when I was a very young girl, I, I live in a, in a town called Campbelltown, which is just outside of Sydney. And we have this celebration every year called the Fisher's Ghost Celebration. Um, it's a massive festival, street parade, carnival rides and all of that sort of Wait, stuff. Wait, the Vicious Ghost Celebration? Fisher, as in Fisher, F-I-S-H-E-R. Okay, so like a fisherman. So the Fisher yes. Ghost Celebration. Okay. Yes, yes. See, uh, what, that, that's the man's surname. And what happened was he um, had gone to prison because he owed 80 pounds or something. This is in 1822 he went to prison. He gets out four years later and the man next door to him actually had taken over his, his, his property. So um, he sort of said, no, you can't do that. It's, it's my land and everything. And then what happened was he disappeared and no one could actually find him. And after a couple of months, this man burst into the pub saying, I've just seen Fisher's ghost. And so they got a couple of trackers to go out and look and they found his body right where the ghost had been. So instantly I was hooked as a very, very young girl. And so, I mean, when a whole town celebrates a murder, you know that right. <laughs> you're destined to do this for the rest of your life. <laughs> That's great. The Fisher Ghost Celebration. And we'll have a link to that in the show notes. We'll, we'll take some of the things we talk about and put links in the show notes. So true crime sounds like it was bred into you at an early age. When did you decide you were interested in becoming a, an author? Um, I've been writing since I was about eight years old, so it's just something that has always been part of me. But I mean, growing up through high school, I thought I was going to be a singer and a, and a dancer. I was doing a lot of things on stage and stuff like that. But um, then someone handed me the book Silence of the Lambs, and uh, obviously that that very much changed my life. But um, just after that, because I was about eighty eight in eighty nine, we had a serial killer here in Sydney who was killing elderly ladies. And they thought, okay, Silence of the Lambs, yeah, we'll, we'll try and do some profiling. They got it totally and utterly wrong. They said it was going to be this young kid who didn't like elderly women, end up being a 50-year-old man with a wife and kids. Um, so they totally got it wrong. But instantly I'm thinking, okay, well, he looks really normal, really average. You know, he was a pie salesman, you know, ty typical Australian job. Wait, he was a pie salesman? Pie salesman. So it's like really, really bland. <laughs> what do you, is that like a guy that works in the counter in a dessert, a bakery or something like that? Or is. No, he goes he goes to stores and sells them their, their fresh pies. So okay, the okay. Guy actually, yeah, yeah. So rather than at a store, he, he was the one who sold the stores their pies, you know, very Australian. Um, and so when, when he got arrested, it was like, okay, so he's not this drooling madman, you know, not this Buffalo Bill sort of person. He was just really average. So instantly I thought, okay, I need to work out who these people are and what they do, what they do. So I started researching, interviewing. Um, I've spent years looking at serial killers and talking to them. And it just culminated in, in, in my very first book many years ago now. And what was that book? It was called River of Blood. I mean, I don't pretend. <laughs> no, that's great. Going for the... You know, you go going for the throat, uh, so to speak, mm -hmm. when it comes to the titles. <laughs> Getting into that now, I mean, obviously, the Sounds of the Lambs was one of the movies that I mean kicked off a whole obsession with serial killers in the 1990s and movies from Seven to you know Copycat. And I'm just I'm, oh, my it, two favorite movies, <laughs> <laughs> right? And it seems like every movie had a serial killer bad guy. All of the, um, well, Morgan Freeman, the, the Alex Cross movies, those were serial killers mm -hmm. too. And yeah. also, when I think of when I first saw The X-Files, and mm -hmm. did The X-Files come out in Australia? Because it came out in the United States in 1993, and it probably came yeah. out at the exact same time. Mm -hmm. 
yeah, probably about a year or two after that, but yeah, about then. You know, with the, with the red hair, uh, Dana Scully, and mm-hmm. with Fox Mulder as a serial killer profiler is what they you know said that what he did. It felt to me when I start, first started watching the X Files, it was like two years after Silence of the Lambs, the movie came out. I was like, oh, they're really going for a Silence of the Lambs kind of thing here. Yeah, and uh, finding that connection between. Um, I just, I mean, serial killers. Just that was the thing in the nineties. And what do yep. you? Why do you think we're fascinated with them? Like they are the most, I mean, gruesome monsters of humanity. And and why do you think it's something that you know? I'll tell you what. If there's a serial killer thing on TV or whatever, I'm in. I'm watching. You know, there's a special. <laughs> and I, and I'm from Milwaukee originally. And in Milwaukee, oh, wow. we have Jeffrey yeah. Jeffrey Dahmer. Yeah. And so absolutely. That, the serial killer capital. <laughs> <laughs> right. Well, Wisconsin, Ed Gein, and Jeffrey Dahmer. So, we, I mean, we, we have yep. a, uh, a fine selection of weirdos from Wisconsin. Yeah, I mean, it's one of those things that everyone, we, I mean, we all slow down at car crashes. We, we all, you know, watch the ambulance go flying past. It's, we, we all have that, that morbid sense of curiosity to think, well, I'm glad that wasn't me. I'm glad that 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 accident happened just before I come through. And, and, and we all have that satisfaction in that, that I'm okay right now. And, you know, and I think we sometimes see serial killers as like that they are these drooling madmen and, and, and these crazy sort of people. But in reality, they're very normal and very average and they actually have normal lives. They have wives and children and, you know, they hold down jobs and all of this sort of stuff. But they have that extra sort of tweak that they have that we don't have. We all have fantasies, but they, don't that they blur that line between reality and fantasy life and i think we love that danger about them that that we we all have desires and we think oh gee that that guy's really cute you know but we go and that's it that's as far as we go whereas a serial killer goes oh gee she's pretty i'm having her i'm taking her and i think that's really important and and we love that fascination that they're almost like a wild animal that we'd like to cage and watch and see. I mean, if if you opened a prison like a zoo, I think you would see cues for days just to look at them. And I think that's a fascination. I think that's a very honest way of looking at it because we are fascinated by prison life, you know, and the idea of these people that I, I like that you put it as a term of a wild animal. Mm-hmm. Because when I think about my cats... You know, you put catnip, you put the food out or whatever. The cat's like, well, maybe I should. They're not like, maybe I should eat it later. Maybe I'll play with this as soon as I'm done with this. They're like, you know what? I want that. I mm-hmm. I see that thing over there. I, a rodent came in. The, I see that over there. I'm just going to kill it and eat it right now. Like, I'm not saving it for later. And like, it's, it's, it's there and I'm going to take it. And I think we are interested because, you know, especially in the United States, we always uh, worship strength. We worship people who uh, aren't afraid, quote unquote, go getters. Mm-hmm. And you hate to connect it like this, but I mean, serial killers are go getters. They just, yeah. they want pretty nasty they, things. They are probably more human than the rest of us because they experience so much more of out of life and death. We, we all, we all sit with this, with this compass that tells us right from wrong. They don't care about that. They experience what they want to experience and how they want to experience it. And the rest of us live a half-life in, in comparison. I mean, I mean, it's a horrible thing to think, but that's actually true. They see the whole gamut of, of experience and, and, um, and emotions and everything. They see the m- most abject horror and fear that we would have no idea how to comprehend. 
No, that's up. That's a good way to put it. So, you know, you've studied this, you've written books on it. Hmm. I like the fact that uh, the Killer in the Family book takes the aspect of, well, what's it like to have somebody in your family that uh, has done these horrible things? You know, what would it it be like to be, I mean, the mother of Ted Bundy? Or, you know, we think about Jeffrey Dahmer's parents and stuff. Like, what did they, you know, they probably did their best and everything. And I mean, Right. I mean, you, you look at Lionel Dharma. He, to this day, uh, has a, such a range of emotions on on what Jeffrey did. You know, because you have to think, he he feels he created a monster, whether it was biological or through family life. He he was the father of one of the most horrific serial killers of all time. How do you how do you juxtapose the boy that you loved and taught how to fish with this man who would in people alive and drill holes into their brains and things like that. I mean, it must be so horrible for them to realise this. Some of them, I mean, there's some wives out there who, to this day, there's a there's a Russian serial killer. His wife, to this day, refuses to believe that he is is a killer, even though he has admitted to the crimes and everything. And yet, we have some that are so disgusted and so horrified by what they did, like um Dennis Rader's wife, BTK killer. Um, that they just sort of like drew a line in the sand and moved on. There was no possible way that they could put those two people together because they can do this. They can that they can compartmentalize what they're doing in parts of their life, and it's just so horrific for these families because we all think about the victims' families, but that butterfly effect of a serial killer just goes on and on and on, and it's actually quite sad for these families. Who have to who have to live with this surname and things like that, like um, Keith Jesperson, who was the Happy Face Killer. He actually said to his daughter when he was arrested, "Honey, you need to change your name." Oh my God! So he had enough empathy for his child yeah. to say, "You know, you're going to have to alter your life because of the things I did." You know, yeah. so, so he feels empathy towards some human, but just not mm-hmm. the humans that he's <laughs> eliminating. Exactly. Yeah. Well, we just jumped right in on the, on the serial killer end of things. Yep. <laughs> I always go dark. <laughs> no, 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 no. And, and that's perfect. But, you know, a little bit of your, you know, writing history and how you got into it and, and how you decided to write a manuscript and do this kind of research, I think, would be interesting uh, for our listeners. So when you decided, okay, you loved writing, something you're getting involved in. What made you pick this time? Did you start with nonfiction first or did you like write a fictional uh, manuscript or how did you get involved to become a published author? Um, well, the, the first book I wrote was River of Blood, which, which was the serial killer book. That was, um, it's kind of like an encyclopedia. It's got about 200 killers in it. And it was just, it actually started off as a website. This is really, really early in, in the days of internet. There was no such thing as Wikipedia or anything like that back then. And um, I just wanted to get a lot of cases together. I have a massive library at home, and I just found that I wanted those little bits of information. I wanted to know who these killers are just to start that off. And so I was writing these tiny little, like, 1,000-word biographies on killers, and I thought, okay, let's put this together. I mean, Jeffrey Dahmer had happened. We had Fred and Rose West in England around the same time, and there was a lot of these cases, and I I was just really interested. So um, back then, you... You know, as I said, you, you couldn't just go to Wikipedia and look it up. I actually had to go through newspapers. I'd go into the libraries in town, and um, I just did research on cases. Bought a lot of magazines and stuff like that. 
So that's where a lot of it started. Was it a dot .com? Was it a GeoCity site? Like what kind of was it? Was it riveroflood.com? Oh, GeoCities. <laughs> it's still out there. It's still scary, but it's still out there somewhere. I think the first one actually had twirling skulls and a blood dripping line on it. I think it was right. really. Wait, what neighborhood were you in? I remember GeoCities because that was like my first band website. It was like in the Sunset Strip neighborhood. What neighborhood are you going for serial killers? I think it was crimes. I think it was just, it was, oh, it had a really weird name. A crime city or something it was called. It was, it was, it was, I can't remember. It was so long ago. It's still out there. Every so often I'll, I'll do a Google search on a serial killer and my website will come up because it's still out there. So and, I never took it down. And that's great. You're the, you're the second person we interviewed this week who uh, yeah. has their original site was on GeoCities. And so is, yeah. so is our band. Oh, cool. So just, that's fun. <laughs> I, I think I still have a MySpace out there somewhere as oh, well. Oh, of course. <laughs> yes, but I mean, from there, I mean, the next book I wrote was actually about um, a kidnapping here in Sydney. And um, so that was a lot easier to to research being a local case. But with that, um, my what had happened was the boy had been um, abducted and put into this very specific type of car. And it was sort of linked to this case forever. Um and what happened was the killer actually sold the car the day after he, he killed the boy. And my grandparents had actually bought the car. So I actually had a link to, to that case. Oh, from, man. And, and this happened in 63, so a couple of years before I was born. But um, my, my grandparents would get pulled over by police all the time being asked, you know, this is the Graham Thorne car. Um, so <laughs> it was one of those things that happened a lot. Um, so, you know, and this family stories like that, that actually helped me do what I do. I mean, I don't know why my sister or my cousins don't do what, what I do because we've all had the pretty much the same upbringing, but um, it's things like that, that just made me decide that I'm interested in all of this. So I've found a couple of threads through history. I mean, when I was four, I was at um, a friend's party, um, and all of the adults were talking about this man and, and they're whispering saying he killed his wife, he killed his wife. And I'm thinking... He just looks like a normal guy. And even back then, it was that clear. Wait, what um, kind of party were you going to when you were four years old? And there was a, there's a guy that killed his wife there. <laughs> like, were your parents like, no, it's our family friend. It's fine. He just got out of the clink. He's great. Yeah. Well, the case remains unsolved. Ah, so it's a guy whose wife disappeared. Yeah. Well, no, no, no. That's, they, um, his wife and another man had been at a party and gone off to have a liaison and, and the husband went somewhere else apparently to have a liaison too. And it's called the Boggle Chandler case, B-O-G-L-E for Boggle for those who don't understand my accent. Um, and they were found in a really mysterious case and they were found beside a river. They'd both stripped off naked, but then they had their, while, whilst they were lying on the ground, their clothes had been completely placed over them like as if they were, you know, like a paper doll kind of thing. And um, it was Ooh. a really strange case. It's never been solved. They don't know how they died. They don't know why they died. They don't know who killed them. So, but yeah, but this 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 husband was at this party. And so all these years later, I said, Mum, who, who was that guy? And she said, that was Chandler's husband. Like, you know, that's the big suspect in the case. He's even written a book like O.J. Sitch. OJ Simpson did saying if I did it kind of thing. Oh my god! <laughs> but it's never been solved. So even back then, I had all these links to to famous crimes that it's just it's just had it had to happen. I don't think I had a choice. I think it was pure fate. Okay, and and that's fantastic. But how did the website turn into a book? 
Were you approached to do it, or were you like, you know what, I can collect this and turn this into an encyclopedia of serial killers and then sell it in the bookstore? Yeah. I mean, I I am so terrible at websites that it was really dodgy, and it, which is means bad. <laughs> um, and so I decided to pull it down from that. I love to write. Let's actually get it to an editor. Let's get it to a publisher. So um, I wrote it with a friend in England, and um, we put it all together. It was uh, like a hundred thousand words. That the original thing it was massive. And so they cut it down and packaged it and did photos and did, did a cover. I took it to about three or four publishers before someone picked it up. So um, it was really easy from sort of, you know, but back then before Amazon and all of that, it was it, it was still hard to get a publishing deal. But compared to now, when, you know, everyone can publish 100 books a week, um, it was a lot a lot harder back then. But it was, it, it was still relatively easy for me. So that there was a market there and I jumped on it before a lot of people did. So that's that's how you you kicked off your authorial career. Uh, mm-hmm. Did that started with the website and uh, the fascination with true crimes and interesting. You wrote a book on the kidnapping that your grandparents had bought the car that the kid was kidnapped in. That's right. Uh, that <laughs> it makes me makes Sydney sounds like a scary place all of a sudden. But I guess uh, I guess Milwaukee sounds like a scary place to a lot of people. Say, hang on a sec. <laughs> All right. We don't you know, have Jeff Dahmer, so. <laughs> when it comes to serial killers, it's all names that a lot of people can, you know, just name off. When they think about Ted Bundy, they think about Jeffrey Dahmer. They think about, uh, you know, people that have been popularized in fiction. What's a lesser known serial killer you think whose story you find really compelling and you, you can't believe they haven't made a movie about it yet? Oh, well, they make films about all of them. Because I was going to say Fred and Rose West, but they made a really good English series on it um, about three or four years ago. I find it amazing that Americans don't know about Fred and Rose West. Now, they're a serial killing couple, um, and the way they were arrested I don't know about Fred and Rose West, so I'd love to hear about it. (laughs) I mean, it it was the way that they were arrested, which just sort of just piqued my interest, and it's been one of those cases I've got every book on. I've seen everything about it. Now, they were a married couple. They had a whole range of children, a lot of mixed-race children, which was quite surprising seeing that they were both you know, white Englishmen. Um, and what happened was there was rumours that their eldest daughter had disappeared and the police would go around and child services would go around, nut, nut, nut. She, she took off, she ran away. We don't know where she is. She's gone, she's gone, she's gone. So they would do that with adopted kids, would run away. No, 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 no. This is their real children. I'll explain okay. how they have mixed race children. Okay, okay. <laughs> um, yeah. Um. So the police would keep turning up and everything, and then finally, one of the police officers and she had been pursuing them for years and years and years because the girl had been missing for about seven years, and she, and she spoke to one of the children, and they said, "Oh, Heather's under the under the garden," and so she goes right, took her to the to the head of the police service there, and said. You know, there's rumours that the girl's in the garden. We need to dig up the garden. They, You know, they pushed it, pushed it, pushed it. Yep, okay, let's do this. They started digging up the garden. And they did it for about three weeks. Didn't find a single thing. Then finally, they found some bones. You know, big uproar. Yes, we found bones, we found bones. They arrested Fred, took him to the police station, started talking to him. And, you know, they said, Fred, we got you. We know we found Heather. Start confessing. And he's like, no, no, I didn't do it. Finally, they, they, they said, look, we have leg bones. He goes, okay, yes, I admit it. I, I killed my daughter, Heather. And they said, that's great, except we found three leg bones. And instantly he's like, whoa, hang on a sec. So instantly he, he actually admitted then and there to seven killings. 
soon as they found the third leg bone, it, it, it was all up. And then they they put his wife Rose into um, a halfway house and recorded her talking about how many victims there were. I mean, there's at least twelve that they found. And, w- and, and so, what what decade did this happen in? This is ninety. So they they'd been killing for twenty years. So this is so in the, this is in the nineteen nineties. This is happening. Yep. And yeah, so I mean, Jeff Dahmer was in '92. This is this is in March '94 that this all came to light, and Americans know nothing about it. It's so amazing, no, absolutely. Yep, and so they actually started digging through all of these girls that had disappeared and everything, including Fred's first wife, um, one of Fred's girlfriends. Um, they found out that Rose had been acting as a prostitute. Now she's a forty-year-old woman with children, um, right. who was having children to to her. Um, clients, which were a lot of Pakistani and Indian men, which is where the half-caste children, because they were trying to work out, well, this is a married couple, why, why are the children half-caste and why are they mixed race and all of this? Oh, interesting. So what does half-caste mean? I'm not sure that... Half-caste means um, white and Indian. Oh, okay. Okay. I, I so, guess I yeah. hadn't had heard that before. So, okay. okay I, yeah. I, I love to learn new vocabulary. Okay. <laughs> Yeah, so it was so amazing, and uh, there was so there was two daughters that had been killed. So the first wife had been killed, and but they had what they'd done to their victims. They had actually put them into their basement, and they had raped them and done all these horrible things to them, and basically cut them off like meat, like the Texas Chainsaw. You know, just you know, you go oh, to God. the donor kebab shop, and they just yeah, they would just keep slicing away at these bodies until there was nothing left. They they hid all the fingers and toe bones. They did not find a single finger or toe bone. So it was they did all these really weird things. So she would get pregnant from the prostitution. Yep. And they would raise the children. Yep. Yep. Were so, they, I mean, and so they must have been tremendously secretive. And and the fact is, where did Ed find a woman to, to participate in this with him? Like how would I mean, how would she get in good God? Well she she was just as involved. I mean they they sexually abused all of their children. Well, a lot of their children. Some of them have have denied it happened, but their elder children were certainly abused and everything. It was a perfect storm. This relationship. I mean, he was about thirty, I think, when they got together, and she was about sixteen. She was actually brought in as a babysitter for the children that Fred had with her, um, his first wife. Okay, so, so he was older and she was really young. I mean, that's almost like you know, you think about Charles Starkweather or whatever. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. You know, an, old, an older guy like lures in a young woman to his web. Yeah, I mean, they, they they both come from horrific backgrounds. Both of them were sexually abused themselves growing up. Rose was abused by her father from the moment she was pretty much born. So it was just this whole life of incest and sexual abuse and torture and murder, and it just had perpetuated this entire family of toxicity. Um, it, it's just one of those massive cases and. You know, it was all bones, and they dug up fields where where Fred used to live in in a caravan, and all these amazing things. But it's it's one of the biggest cases in the world. Yet Americans know very little about. I've never it. never and even it. heard of it, and I and I like this. St- I mean, I don't like yeah. this stuff, but I'm interested yeah, in this stuff. <laughs> right? I can't. Nobody's like serial killers. High five! I mean, <laughs> I know we we sort of live on the shadows. <laughs> <laughs> right? It's like no, it's all really interesting, and and. It's these people that live at the edges of human existence that, you know, uh, I mean, Ed and Rose Fox, like, no, that's, that's fascinating. Do you know the name of that uh, English series that, so people can check that out if it might be something they're interested in? It's called An Appropriate Adult. An Appropriate Adult. Yeah, yeah. So it's about Fred and Rose West. 
So um, because Fred was um, slightly developmentally delayed, he had a car accident, uh, a bike accident, actually, that sort of give, gave him brain damage. They tried to blame that and everything, but he was um, illiterate and things like this. So they needed to have sort of a guardian come into the interviews to watch and and sort of guide him. And sort of, so it's told from the appropriate adult's um, viewpoint of watching this man confess to these horrible killings and how it affected her. So he's almost like a sling blade type of guy. You ever see that movie with Billy Bob Thornton? Like a sl- yeah. slower kind of mentally disabled. Yeah, yeah, he was um I mean he was extremely cunning if if you read the book that he wrote with his um his lawyer. He's actually because it's got a lot of his his confession in it. Um he's he's not he's not as dumb as he liked to make out. So and um after he had confessed before they went to trial, he actually hanged himself. So, so he never faced the charges. Whereas Rose is now in prison for the rest of her life for ten of the twelve killings. Oh God! And so, I mean, and her life is—I mean, obviously she was complicit, but I mean, she's still like her life. That's the kind of person, sixteen years old, picked up by an older sicko, like never even had it, and abused before then, never even had a chance. No, no, no. So it's just it's just one of those incredible cases, you know, it's just how these two people meet and how they can be such perfect killing machines and get away with it for 20 years together. It's just amazing. That That's something else. Okay, so well, that's an interesting case to learn about Fred and Rose West. Now, uh, a lot of the stuff we talk about on this show is, uh, I mean, not just the, the dark side of humanity, like we're talking about serial killers and, and, and people like that, but also uh, links to things that have you know, supernatural or paranormal, and, and so much of film in fiction and things, um, we have these supernatural serial killers. you got guys, you know, Jason Voorhees from Friday the 13th, or yeah. Michael Myers from Halloween, supernatural killers that, you know, can't be hurt and can't be stopped and stalking through the night and things like that. In your research and the, and the things that you've looked into, have you found any particular killers with any kinds of Maybe something unexplained happened in their confessions. Maybe some link to the occult. Uh, anything that you're you're finding. I mean, Jeffrey Dahmer obviously had certain kind of beliefs about yeah. controlling people's minds and and, yeah. and things like that, and, and trying to turn people into zombies, like his sex slaves. Yeah, I mean, I, I love that case, that the Jeffrey Dahmer case. You know, to, to think and to be that that. Um, Oh, what's the word I want? Um, to actually come up with such an idea, it's just, it's just in, incomprehensible. I mean, but there's a lot of cases through through history of of killers saying that they're going to come back and and you know seek revenge and everything. I mean, there's a case in Canada in New Brunswick. Um, Kanaka Pete, his name is big burly Hawaiian guy that got killed, uh, got executed. Well, what had happened? He'd come home drunk one night to find his wife at home with his new baby and her parents are standing over saying, you know, you're a drunk, that's it, we're taking you, our daughter home, we're taking the baby and we're leaving you. And he went into a massive rain, rage and rather than sort of staying there and find them, he, he took off and um, went and got more drunk, come back later to find um, his wife having sex with her own father and that was it. He lost the plot. Whoa. Um, and totally, so- yeah. <laughs> lost the plot i'd say coming back to find your wife the mother of yep. your child engaged in incest with your father-in-law um yep. whilst the mother-in-law is watching holding the baby so it gets messier. <laughs> so the mother-in-law is there too okay 
Now, yep. what did Kanaka Pete do? Oh, he, he took an axe and decided to chop them all up into very little pieces, um, literally into mush. He destroyed all, all, all four of them. Um, however, Even the baby? Then, and the baby, and the baby, oh, the whole God. lot got, got slaughtered. And he took off and um, went to this island in, in Canada and um, he, you know, they, the, the, the authorities quickly caught up with him. He got arrested, he got charged and, and he was hanged. And he vowed that he would um, he would come back and seek revenge because that was revolting and they shouldn't have done that and just because he's drunk, you know, was a horrible thing. And so he was executed and everything. Now, this whole camping grounds, I can't even think of what it's called, but this whole ca- camping grounds, people actually go there because Kanaka Pete still walks the town. He's where, where the killings happen is not now all decayed and destroyed and everything. But I don't know if, if you guys have seen, but there's been a lot of cases of um, dismembered feet turning up. Yes, that was a big thing with the feet just showing up out of nowhere. Well, it's all, it's all near where Kanaka Pete killed his family. So there's some rumours that, you know, that Kanaka Peak is back and he's severing people's feet like he did to his family. So that's oh, one God. case I found recently. So, I mean, because we really don't know where these feet are coming from and, and you know, is there people around there without their left foot or is, you know, there's some serial killer destroying all these people. But there, people are saying as Kanaka Peak has come back to seek revenge. So, oh. you know... Just a little bit of a weird case there, so right. you know, yeah, because I was looking at this case because of it, because of the haunted camping ground, and then all the stuff about the feet started turning up. I was like, okay, so there's the link. <laughs> Interesting. When I'm researching into haunted history and everything, you do see that hangings seem to create more ghost stories than other kinds of executions. That's at least that's what I find in the places Absolutely. I've done research on. Yeah. And you recently released a book on hanging, isn't that right? That's right, yep, called Rope. Imaginative <laughs> title. <laughs> what compelled you about hangings as compared to different kinds of execution? Basically because hangings has, has been an execution style from basically the start of history. We have been hanging people for thousands and thousands of years, um, whereas things like the guillotine and everything are actually quite a short history so um i mean after doing all this stuff with serial killers and and doing a lot of crime history it was actually interesting to see what happened next you know yes because a lot of books end with and they went to jail they were sentenced to death so it was about well what happens when you know that that next chapter in these people's lives so i mean it was just an interesting story to look at i mean when i first started researching it i thought oh this is going to be so dry so boring so dull but it's not, it is so fascinating. There is people that escaped, there is people that were hanged for three days and they said, okay, I'm not dead, can you please let me down? You know, and there's some fascinating cases. People, there was one man who woke up on the autopsy table at this big um, teaching school um, for doctors and he sat up and gasped for breath and the doctor was so furious that they didn't have a cadaver that day that he actually punched the man to death. <laughs> After this man had survived being hanged, he was punched to death by a doctor. I mean, there was fascinating cases like that. So it was just really interesting to look at all of these cases. But, I mean, I've done a, a lot of tours around um, abandoned jails and things like that, and there's a lot, of, a lot of restless souls. There's a lot of noise around the scaffolds and, and, and the trap doors and everything. 
I've been to a lot of places. And regardless of what we'd like to think, about one in every 300 hangings actually goes right. You oh, know, God. that they drop, yeah, you know, that they drop, they snap, and they're dead. Very, very few go right because, you know, a tiny miscalculation, they strangle, they get decapitated, they, um, you know, just hang and choke. You know, there's all different ways that it could go. It's very unlikely that it will go right. So, I mean, there's a lot of tortured souls out there that just hang around. And I've seen some really weird stuff. And people like to go with me to these things, they say, because I have that death around me because I do this, you know, and I have these this restlessness around me. Um, I went to a, a jail just the other night and they said, you know, we've had no activity for ages and ages. It's been quite dull. And I thought, okay, um, because I'm not – I'm. I'm not very brave when it comes to nighttime and jails. And <laughs> of course not. It's, there's give a lot of weird killer. stuff that goes on in there. Exactly. Give, give me a serial killer in a daytime prison, I'm right. But take me to an abandoned prison at nighttime, it's not the same. Um, and we had these light orbs that were just going around us and everything. And they're like, we've never had this. And it's because you're standing here. That was circling me on the floor. There was these white lights on the floor. It was... um quite terrifying. <laughs> and that was in an old jail in Australia? Yes, that was here in Sydney called um, Parramatta Jail. So, yeah, so they do some fantastic ghost hunting there. Um, I, I went as, as guests of the owners. Um, but, you know, I said, look, I'm not sceptic, but seeing is believing. And I, I basically ran out of there a believer and said, please don't, <laughs> right. don't, don't invite me again. <laughs> well, because of all of the people you want to be haunted by, you want it to be like your kindly uncle or your granddad or something like that. Exactly. I'm saying I do not want to be taken over. I do not want to be touched by one of these killers, especially if they're in one of my books. I really don't, don't want that thing. You know, when you grow up, you always hear urban legends, at least mm -hmm. we did as a kid, and be like, okay, yeah. well, when you would talk about hauntings, it would always be the ghost of some kind of killer, some kind of murderer, and, you know, so the you know the ghost here like to kill children, and there's never any yeah. kind of backup to it or a real story. It's just a legend. Yeah. But you're researching the killers who actually did these things. Now, mm -hmm. like, like the story at Kanaka Joe, are there any in particular... Where when you were doing research on it, you know, people did feel that, uh, like you said, the restless spirit kind of thing. That people did feel like the the souls of these killers were still tortured, still participating, still coming back to the place of their crimes after their death. Yeah, I th I think there's there's been a few. Now let me think of one. I mean, going to the jail the other day, um, there is a serial killer who had murdered a lot of schoolgirls and um had was actually involved in the church inside the prison and they actually brought in um, a whole schoolgirl choir to, to come and sing to, her, to the prisoners, as you do. Or like, hello, I don't know why. Um, and, and he abducted and, two, and killed two of the girls. When he was in prison? In the prison. Like, I just don't get it. I just, it was just amazing. And um, I couldn't even walk into this small chapel. I said, I don't know what's going on in here, but I, I cannot, I cannot cross that threshold into that building. And they said, well, surprising you should say that. A killer killed two girls in this church. And it's like, yeah, I, I, it, was, it was definitely that. There was a feeling there. And they said a lot of people feel that they can't go in. These two innocent girls had come to sing to the prisoners, you know, doing their good Christian duty. Right. Um, oh, God, who, who so, would be okay so, with that? Like, what teacher was <laughs> like, this is brilliant? I, <laughs> I have an idea. <laughs> 
Um, yeah, it was it's just weird. So I don't know if it was him that was there or the girls that were there, but it was there was just a feeling of all these buildings that we went into and we went into all the cells and we went into into the execution chamber and all of this, but this the the feeling of that church, a lot of us went nuts, can't even walk in there. So whether it's him still there because he actually died at that prison or if it's the girls, I don't know, but there was just that that whole emotion involved there. Well, and I suppose in your research, when you're working on your books, you've had to interview a lot of the police involved in catching these people or maybe, you know, victims of families and stuff like that. And I always wonder, because a lot of these different killers, they always, sometimes they try to pass the buck, you know, like say I was possessed or, you know, there's some spirit they talk to, like the son of Sam or things like that, that that Satan was talking to me through my dog. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. <laughs> when you're interviewing some of these people who've been affected so horribly by these killers, do you ever, you know, get the sense of that that they almost um any any of that spirit like rubbed off like that negativity or anything like that has has rubbed off in them in in some kind of way that they just can't shake? What in of of the victim's family? Yeah, and the victim's family or even the people who are investigating. You know, there's always that, that Nietzsche yeah. that Nietzsche quote that says, you know, be careful when you look into the void or whatever. Yeah, yeah. It, when you look into the abyss, the, the abyss often looks back. Uh, it, it definitely, definitely happens. There, I, I've, I have friends that, that are police officers um, that have walked into a crime scene and they've walked back out and left because that's it. They're, they're done. They've seen evil and there is no way that they could – that they can go beyond that. Um, I, I have one friend that's a police detective. He arrested um, a man in Sydney about five or six times. He kept arresting him. He actually sh- um, fired a shot at my friend's head, and he's deaf now in one ear and everything. Oh, God. And the guy always said that you know I'm gonna I'm gonna get you one day. And it was and they had this sort of cat and mouse. And then this this guy actually went and killed about 25 people in a nightclub with a fire. He he barricaded the whole building and set it on fire, so everyone got caught inside. And that cop has always lived with. I wish I'd kept him in prison, but he kept getting out, kept getting out, kept getting out. And he actually carries that killer with him because that that guy ended up dying later for something. Have no idea. Um, and but he he reckons to this day that that killer just sort of haunts him the whole time, and he's never been able to get over that. He he says, you know, he just. I see him all over the place. He goes, I hear his voice. I see him because he's, he's, he said he'd get me and he has. So, I mean, that's very true. You know, when you talk to these people and, and interview them, do they, you know, like I always, when I talk about things, I, I say like, well, I don't really believe in the devil or believe in evil. And I think that hum- there's, you know, there's human impulses and there's, a- there's morality and they're amoral. Yeah. But I found that when I've talked to, police officers and friends who've done this, they do believe there is a, not necessarily the devil, but that evil is real. It's not just relative on a human morality scale, but there is something to, you know, people who are trying to destroy other people's lives. I mean, especially when you look at cases of um, child abuse and uh, there's a girl in, in, in the States about to be released after physically tormenting and abusing her baby um, along with her husband and his brother or something. It's, I can't even think of what the case is called. But there is just sometimes the easiest way to describe it is to call them evil because they come up with imaginative ways to abuse and t- torture that 
you want to think that the human psyche doesn't go there, that it is actually something beyond that is creating this because, um, you know, we worry about the monsters under the bed, but really, you know, they're, they're walking along the street sometimes. And that just to think that there's people out there that can, you know, hang up a girl on, on a meat hook and strip her skin until there's nothing left of her. I mean, sometimes you just think, how the hell did they end up there? What, they can't be human, you know, and we want to hope that they're not human, that, that we don't want to think that we all have that in us. Sure, that it's even possible that these, like, yeah. there, there's an otherness to it. It's like, no, no, they're, they're, you understand yeah. that they're monsters. They're not, they're not people. Yes, that's right. But when you talk, you, you realize that, you know, you talk about these killers with families and stuff like that, you know, that love their children. Absolutely. Some of them are devoted hus- husbands and fathers, and you think, but you just went and killed someone else's sons. You know, I just, uh, just how, how do you juxtapose those two people in one, you know, and we have to think that, there's something different, that there's something wrong, you know, but mm-hmm. it's terrifying. Now, you've been able to explore this in the true crime genre, but you also have been able to explore this in your own fiction. Mm-hmm. So when you started writing fiction, what kind of influences did you take from your uh, your true crime writing? And why why did you move into fiction from, from true crime? You know, if you're used to trying to get the facts about everything, like why did you decide like, well, no, I can make it up? Well, really because the facts got too horrifying. I was I was doing a book called Predators, so you can imagine what that's going to be about. It was that's not about, about the Arnold Schwarzenegger movie, right? Not about that. <laughs> no, no. It was it was a book on child sex predators and I was researching one case um on a killer called Marc Dutroux in Belgium. And there is a whole um there's there's the small story of Marc Dutroux, um who killed a couple of girls, buried them in his basement, all of this sort of stuff. But there's this whole other conspiracy around him about that um, these girls were procured for torture parties and horrific things like this, and it went to royal families and politicians and all of like this massive, massive pedophile ring. And I basically threw my laptop across the room saying, I can't do this, I'm done, I'm not writing about this sort of stuff, it's just revolting, I hate it and everything. But... At the same time, I write like I breathe. It's, it's part of what I am. It's part of who I, I am. Of so I, I had to do something. I had to still have that creative outlet. So I started writing actually a werewolf story. Okay. <laughs> I don't know why, but that's where I went. So I went to that supernatural theme of, um, you know, the, the shapeshifter sort of thing. Um, and I started to write this story, and I started to write it as a two-piece thing, that there was this historical story of this family of, of werewolves and everything, and this modern-day cop um, and her trying to solve crimes, and they were kind of linked. Um, so it was a really bizarre story, and I ended up cutting it in two and making a cop drama, which is now my ritual series. And the other werewolf story is sitting there thinking, one day I'll come back to that. Because <laughs> it was really interesting, but I just – it. I decided to make it sort of more along the lines of my serial killers and all of that. So, and so it's called Ritual because um, each killer in each book kills in in a ritualistic way. Like the first one is based on the um, sacrifices that the Aztec okay. ceremonies did. So that's where I went for the first one. The second one um, uses the spiritual nature of the elements and 
So, you know, one girl was um, drowned and, and one girl was set on fire. And so there was all of that. So I just sort of went to sort of that sort of nature without doing the werewolves and everything. So it was just that it's, it's what I like to do. So that's why I went into fiction and it just sort of, it freed me. I didn't have to sit there with 19 textbooks around me and newspaper articles and crime scene photos. I could actually just go go from my brain, which is full of this stuff. It's full of serial killers and murderers and horrible, horrible things. So, well, you got to find a way to get it out somehow. Exactly. It needed to come out. It's, it's very good therapy sometimes to actually write and get this down on paper so it's not in, in there because it is. <laughs> you know, it's interesting that you go right from the true crime into a very a similar kind of thing, except from the, a narrative perspective versus a more a documentarian perspective. And have you found that in the fiction you're able to explore, I don't know, like alternate things that could have happened in some of the uh, the real cases that you've done, like that you find a way like, well, this is how maybe it, it could have ended better or it should have ended or finding ways to have at least happier endings than what really happened? Well, I mean, they always get their bad guys. So, okay. <laughs> I mean, I mean, you have to be able to do that. I've got I've got ideas for one to escape in 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 a future book. But um, they always get their bad guy and, and the cops are all, always the heroes. I mean, um, the DNA evidence is always clear. You know, the stuff ups are always miraculously fixed and everything. So so there's always that, you know, the good cop, you know, bad, bad killer sort of thing. So um, but I also get to use a lot of conversations that I have with killers because I love to play games. So I can play those games on paper, whereas in a true crime book, you can't you can't give killers that personality so you know you've got to actually talk about the facts you can't say that you know that they laughed about it and things like that you have to leave that sort of personality that you know we just want to know them as monsters we don't want to know about their loving families and stuff like that so it's part of you know so when I do these fictional stories I can actually use those cases I mean I've spoken to so many serial killers over the years and you know families and things like that so it's been quite easy to use that in in my fiction and just play around with it and and make them a bit more you know three-dimensional that than one and two dimensions that you actually get in a true crime book as someone that's interviewed a lot of these people what do you think is the public's biggest misconception about serial killers like we you know we talked about the monster aspect but um you know what do you think because we all have all these ideas from Hollywood films and from the sounds of the lambs and from the the terror, the horror films we've seen. What do you think most of us are getting wrong when we think about serial killer? Well, we expect them to be really vile. We, I mean, Richard Ramirez was really vile. He was revolting. The, the stuff that he said and sent to me was just horrific. Wait, Richard Ramirez is the Night Stalker, right? Yes, that's right. Yeah, in LA. Yeah. So, yeah. And, and, you, and you had conversations with yeah. the Night Stalker? Yeah. Oh, oh God! Like, how do you do that? Just send them a letter, or you like call up? Yeah, like, hey, oh, how are you going? I mean, I've I've got a pile of letters just here from um, um, Dean Cole's accomplice Wayne Henley. I've got um Robert Yates. Uh, who else is there? Um, Charles Manson. You know, <laughs> I got a whole pile of stuff just here. <laughs> um, but most of them they watch their P's and Q's, and and they really just if. If I handed you a letter and said, read this, not telling you the source, most people go, oh, okay, so you've got a nice friend in, in California, you know, like, oh, okay, that, that's nice. They're talking about, you know, their daily routine and what they're doing and, 
you know, going and having some exercise and everything. And if I said to you now they've raped and killed 14 women, you know, you wouldn't pick it because they are so average and normal. I mean, it would be lovely to have all these people that write letters and do all these explicit crime scenes and everything, but it's not. It's more basic than that. It's all about their desire and, and, and their sexual fantasies and their power and things like that. Um, whereas, you know, the films are always very imaginative and everything. But really, um, I had I had a serial killer swear at me in, in a phone call one time. I got five letters after that apologizing for using the F word um, because he was so mortified that he used that in front of a lady. I mean, <laughs> it's just um, they had some really weird standards. Um, yes. Well, yeah, like, and, so you mentioned like Charles Manson. Um, yeah. And when, when you see an interview with Charles Manson, oh, you know, and, 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 <laughs> right, he's got the swastika on his head and he looks crazier than ever. I remember Geraldo Rivera interviewing Charles Manson yeah. when I was a kid yeah. and you watch that and he, he'd say yeah. like, I'm Jesus Christ. No, I'm yeah. Satan. No. And you're like, oh my God, this guy's, this guy's <laughs> batch <laughs> crazy. And now they kind of humanize him in the new Aquarius TV show, speaking of x-files yeah. david Duchovny's yeah. show yeah. so like what when you get a letter from charles manson like what's it like i mean what does it say just like thank you thank you for the letter hope you're having a great day chuck no, charlie in for charlie take it easy <laughs> um it's rambling just rambling no sentence structure um not many full stops <laughs> just keeps going and going and going um, I've actually got a recording of, of a phone call on, on my computer of, of, that a friend sent me. He goes, can you just try and explain this phone call to me? Um, and he starts talking about Black Panther, you know, act, activist group and um, about where the bodies are buried and, you know, that Jesus will come down and save everyone. And then he talks about Hitler and the, it's just this rambling thought process that has has no no rhyme or reason to it and it's really really bizarre it's just it's charlie manson is charlie manson he it's like ulysses by james joyce as filtered through charles manson <laughs> exactly exactly it's just i mean i don't know if this has been something that he, he's perpetuated through time because it gets a reaction sure so uh, you know because at the beginning he was a bit more subdued i mean when you've been in prison for 40 odd years and 20 years before that as well i think that you get to a point that you either go back crazy or you don't right and i think he right. just let it go he just went yep i'm there that's what i'm doing Let's let this happen. and and that's what he's done for this entire time he said that richard ramirez said vile things was this i mean did you did you engage in a normal conversation just start with like i'm interested in just learning more about your crimes i'm writing a book or something like that and then he responds by playing the character or well, I mean what no, it just just demands and vile you know I, I want you to send me photos of this and I want you to go to the beach and you know take your camera and take photos of this woman and she has to look like this and she has to wear be wearing this and all creepy creepy things I mean I got I got a letter this week from Haddon Clark which is a US serial killer he wants me to send him a 2017 Australian beach calendar with girls in it of course and I have to write on it to Dr. Bunny with all my love. It's like, what, what is, where does this come from and Dr. Bunny? I mean, I, I'm going to have to research why, like, what that reference means because it, it's going to mean something. But you just sort of sometimes go, 
Okay, he sent me a whole lot of pictures of um Cookie Monster he'd coloured in. Like colouring book pictures of Cookie Monster. Yeah, colouring pictures of Cookie Monster. It's like so random. And so and it's really it's things like this that people can let get into their head and this is where, you know, that I actually get further beyond because people go, Oh my god, oh my god, oh my god, cookie I can never watch Sesame Street again, I'll tell you that now. Um, it's really messed up. But <laughs> um, <laughs> I used to love Cookie Monster. Never again. Never, never again. Um, right. But, C but is for cutting. You know, that. Yeah. <laughs> oh, no, no, no. Now you've just ruined it <laughs> completely. It's done now. <laughs> I'm going to have to use that. <laughs> Go ahead. It's, it's, it's yours. <laughs> it's, it's, it's just, they play these games and it's about, knowing which games to play back and which games to just let go. I mean, Cookie Monster, Dr. Bunny, I mean, it's just some of it's just it's so far out there that I Haddon Clark is going to be like Charles Manson. He's just going to let it all loose and I'm just going to have to try and keep up with with that thought process, um, whereas others are very polite and they write these very neat letters and, you know, they ring and they're always polite and everything. But, yeah, just a couple of them are way out there and, you know, and Richard Ramirez was one of them as well. It's just... Do you think they're comfortable with being hated and feared? Like, it's one thing, you know, I feel bad sometimes if I just think that the that the woman at the counter at the deli doesn't like me. Like, if you're someone like Charles Manson, you mean, people think of you as a, as a demon, you know, they think of you as, you know, insane force of evil. If you're Richard Ramirez, I mean, that's that's baked into the description of yourself, you know? Mm-hmm. And of course, because of their fame, they get messages from people constantly. And people say, I mean, yeah. people like Charles Manson got married or whatever. Yeah, that was good stuff. <laughs> but I mean, we think of them as horrible and everything. But Charles Manson gets more fan mail than Justin Bieber. Well, so I, think I think Charles Manson is a better songwriter than Justin Bieber, but that's just <laughs> me. Too. Me <laughs> Yeah, but I mean, they are, some of them are more famous than, you know, Beyonce or whoever. I'm, I'm a bit over all of, all of that. But I mean, yeah, I mean, Charles Manson gets the most fan mail of anyone in the world. That's, so, that's incredible. That's a lot of people that like this stuff. Yeah. Well, Amanda, if people want to find more of your books and more about you, where can they go do that? Well, they can contact me on Facebook and all, all of that. But my, um, my website with no turning skulls and no blood dripping things is amandahoward.com.au so all my details are there fantastic and your latest book is Rope The History of the Hanged so uh, you guys can check that out and of course we're going to link that to the show notes well Amanda I could I could probably talk to you and ask questions all day but uh, we're hitting our time here but thank you for joining us thank you for having me so uh, thanks again to Amanda. She was a lot of fun. Wendy, what's your favorite serial killer piece of fiction or work? Or what's your who's your favorite serial killer? I mean, I know it's a popular choice, but I have to go with Silence of the Lambs mm. because the book is so good and the movie is also so good. It is, and it really, it makes me want to put the lotion on the skin, or else I'll get the hose again. <laughs> yeah, and Hannibal Lecter is just such a creepy villain. You know, it's he's awesome. Yeah. Yeah, he's awesome. Awesome, right? <laughs> and he, yeah, sure. he's awesomely inspired by Ed Gein, and terrifying. Yeah, uh, Ed Gein, right. Wisconsin favorite. You know, speaking of the Silence of the Lambs, the Sunspot song of the week this week features a Silence of the Lambs quote. What's that? Well, when he talks about uh, eating the census taker with a nice Chianti and fava beans. 
Oh, that's right. That's okay. right. A lot of people don't catch that one live, except one time somebody's like, hey, did you quote Hannibal Lecter in that song? And I'm like, yes, we did. Yes, we did. But Silence of the Lambs is a lot of fun. Um, <laughs> Ooh. This song is called Cannibal. Yeah. 
for listening to today's episode. You can find us online at othersidepodcast.com. Until next time, see you on the other side. Oh yeah, let's talk about killing. All right. Anyway, enough of this. C is for cutting. Oh, oh God. Hold up, hold up, hold up. Whoa, 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 yeah. whoa. Well, we, we can't go and let everybody just turn off the podcast without mentioning our awesome Patreon community. That's right. They're the best. They are the best. So thank you very much, Patreons. If you guys want to become part of the awesome See You on the Other Side and Sunspot Patreon community, you can check that out at othersidepodcast.com slash donate. And special thanks to Ned, who is on the tier where we thank him in every single episode. Thanks, Ned. Thank you, Ned. All right. You guys have a great week. We'll see you on the other side. Bye.